0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, Salam, and welcome to the podcast New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your host Shahana Saqqani. Today, we are in a conversation with Heather Kini about her brand new book Uthman Ibn Alfan, Legend or Liability, published with One World in 2021. Kini is an associate professor of history and the chair of the history department at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. She's also the author of another book, Medieval Islamic Historiography, Remembering Rebellion, published with Rutledge in 2013. In her book, Uthman ibn Affan*, fan provides a historical overview of the controversial third caliph of Islam, Uthman ibn al-Fan. She investigates Muslim sources between the 8th and 14th centuries, Shi'i and Sunni and argues that Uthman as a historical figure is constructed by the biographies written about him, by a memory of him, and that these memories often result from polemical debates among Muslims. For instance, even the Sunni sources are not consistent about the portrayal of Uthman in different time periods, and he's not remembered or memorialized in the same ways at all times. In today's discussion, we talk at length about Uthman in all of his complexity. We talk about who he is, why he matters, why his murder matters, his caliphate and the controversies around how he became the caliph, some of the challenges that he faced as a caliph and complaints about his character and leadership, his accomplishments, his murder, and his legacy. Without further ado, here's our discussion. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for agreeing to join with me and talk about your new excellent book, Uthman ibn Affan, Legend or Liability. Um, and I'm very excited to talk to you about this because I learned a lot about Uthman that I didn't know before, uh, cause I, as I was just telling you, I was ambivalent about him and now I actually have formed an opinion on him. <laughs> so there's that. Um, so thank you for this book. And wh- when we start this discussion, uh, it is tradition, it is our tradition on this podcast to begin each interview by inviting our guests to tell us about themselves, about their intellectual journey. So can you tell us about how you got to where you are now?
1: Sure. Um, and thank you for this invitation, Shahnaz. It's a, it's a privilege and I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I studied history in college, but I did European history as probably most students, that's what they're introduced to at an undergraduate level, especially 25 years ago. But then when I went to graduate school, um, I met Stephen Humphreys, uh, who ended up becoming my advisor. And I think I'd always been interested in the clash between ideals and reality. So as an undergrad, I studied World War One, and I just thought that was a really fascinating kind of shuddering halt to the 19th century optimism. And then when I took my first early Islamic history class with Humphreys and came across Uthman and the early Islamic period, I don't know, I think it resonated with me as as having some similarities of a lot of idealism and hope around the birth of Islam and yet so many challenges so early on. I mean, of the first four rightly guided caliphs to die, you know, through murder and then you have civil war and violence. And so I think that kind of tension and how to be honest about the tensions while also holding on to that earlier hope it's just something that whatever I'm studying, I find really interesting. I think I also realized as a graduate student, I really needed to work with somebody who I deeply respected. Um, and I deeply respected Stephen Humphreys. Uh, he and his wife, Gail, are actually coming over for lunch tomorrow. So that relationship has continued. I think the mentor relationship in graduate school for me was really important. Um, but I have to say, I did all of, I had no introduction to the Middle East or Islamic history really before graduate school. So it was a crash course, intensive summer, Arabic classes, Middlebury. I didn't visit the Middle East until after my doctoral exams. So I had done all of my coursework, totally committed. The day after my doctoral exam, I flew to Cairo for the first time to attend CASA for a year. So Thankfully, I loved Cairo, so um, that helped, and I had a great experience. And then actually went back and lived in Cairo for twelve years, uh, teaching at AUC. Um, so I think I
0: don't know. Is that that's kind of
1: what
0: my journey so far? Nice. Wait. So you came, so you want you became interested in in Osman during graduate school?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's my introduction to Islamic history, and then I know. I don't know if listeners will know, but so the, this massive ninth century chronicle by Tabari has been translated into English. And Stephen Humphreys did the, the section, the volume on the caliphate of Uthman ibn Affan. So I guess, yeah, there was that early introduction and yeah, just the inconsistencies of his life. I think I've also always been interested in historiography as much as history, how we write history, what we choose to remember. And so, yeah, the early Islamic period, that's most of the history of the early Islamic period is actually historiography. So it seemed like a good fit.
0: Well, which actually brings me to the next question, because you note in the book, and I think you show it very convincingly that what we're dealing here with is a memory of Osman. Like this may or may not have happened. It's not quite what the reality may have been on ground. So can you tell us more about this memory and you also discuss in detail about the challenges or what a challenge it is to write about someone like Osman. Um, so yeah, just, I I would love to hear about this memory, the the fact that we're dealing with a memory here and the challenges of writing about him.
1: Sure. I mean, I think, um, maybe the early Islamic period is, it's so fascinating because we have very little from the seventh century, but then we have volumes and volumes from the ninth century on. So, it can seem like a, an abundance of material, but then as you dig into it, it becomes increasingly fraught or problematic since there's so little from, from the time. Um, I, I compared to like my earlier work, I actually just focused on the later material and accepted. I wasn't interested in what really happened to Othman. I, I just didn't think we could know. And I was more interested in how interpretations of him changed over time. And that was my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to tackle this book where, you know, writing a biography, I was meant to somehow try to engage with him as a person. And it felt like, you know, somebody trying to write a biography of, I don't know, George Washington with no materials earlier than the 20th century. Um, it's, it's a very challenging task. Um, I think that for a long time, scholars debated, you know, trying to, I think the vocabulary was the authentic kernel you know what is this seed of historical fact that we can uncover from these later sources i think now scholars are less committed to that i think the book is trying to reflect what is the consensus of the scholarship what do we know or can we know or feel confident with simply because it's repeated so often or seems plausible or credible but our ability to really, really know um, what happened or who Uthman was, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just, I mean, we can only know who he is through memory. And that's why, like in the book I talk about, you know, the, it's part of this series, Makers of the Muslim World. And I think Uthman does make the Muslim world, but I think probably even more the Muslim world makes him. It's, it's who they want him to be, who they need him to be, and then how they remember him and memorialize
0: him really. You know, I just realized that we may have some um, listeners who may not be familiar with who, who Osman is. Can you just briefly t- tell us who he is? Sure. So, um, and why he matters? And why he matters, sure, of course. So, the
1: Osman ibn Affan is the third caliph or successor to the prophet Muhammad. And when Muhammad died, there was, you know, Confusion, I think, over what should happen to this fledgling new community that he has created. He was uniquely the leader who combined religious and political authority in a tribal society. So with his passing, does it revert to a tribal structure? Does whoever succeed him, should they stay together under a single leader? Who would that leader be and what would their credentials and authority be if they're not a prophet? Um, like Muhammad, and so this, they came up with this idea of a caliph, which means successor. Which I think is super fascinating because successor can mean a lot of different things. It can simply be a chronolo- chronological marker, you know, the one who came after, fill in the blank as to what their actual authority is, or it can mean successor in ways of carrying some of the authority that Muhammad had. So. Uthman is the third of these caliphs. And I think why he's significant is because the community is still trying to figure out what authority does the leader of the Muslim community have if they're not a prophet. And um, those tensions and lack of clarity around that really came to our head during Uthman's caliphate. He ruled or led for 10 years, 12 years. Um, And at the end of that, there was a rebellion against his rule. And he was brutally murdered, supposedly, the accounts tell us, brutally murdered in his room while he was reading the Quran. So, um, yeah, I mean, what should, I mean, and the idea that who killed him becomes super significant because, according to some versions, not only is this murder of a companion of Muhammad controversial, a leader of the Muslim community controversial, but by most accounts he was murdered by fellow Muslims who were angry at some of his policies which again we're talking 25 years less than yeah 25 years after Muhammad's death you have this internal rebellion and and murder of a Muslim ruler by other Muslims and that's just a long way from what was supposed to be, which again gets back to my earlier point of kind of an idealism and optimism that comes to a shuddering halt um, with some of the kind of realities of, of politics and personality.
0: How does he become a caliph? And, and and why is this method, the Shura Council that elects him, considered so controversial in some sources?
1: Great. So, yeah, I mean, I think Um, The first two caliphs, you know, there's uh, somewhat of kind of appointment or election and then appointment. But with Uthman, it's not clear who should lead. I mean, we're getting a little bit further away from Muhammad's lifetime and these tribal loyalties. I mean, a society that had been organized around tribe and then Islam comes in as a kind of super tribe proclaiming that your ultimate loyalty should be to this new Muslim community. So the way I describe it in the book is that there's this growing tension between loyalty based on bloodline versus loyalty based on belief, and in particular, early belief, and that those who accepted Islam earliest are somehow the most prestigious. And so by the time that um, the second caliph dies, there's the leading tribes of the region are wanting to reassert their dominance, but yet they had opposed Muhammad for In particular, this tribe called the Umayyad, I mean, they had resisted Muhammad because they saw him as a threat to their authority. He wasn't from their clan. And so, you know, when we get to when the second caliph dies, there's this question, does these earlier tribes who had resisted Islam but based on tribal cultures and values, they should have dominated the region. Do they reassert themselves? Or do we say, no, precedence in Islam remains paramount? And so I think, so um, the second caliph appoints a council, a shura council of six men, which there was precedence for this. This was a way of resolving leadership um, disputes and succession disputes when there wasn't a clear successor. And the idea is that if this these six men need to agree on someone, and that person will become the third caliph. But they all represent different tribal groups. And I think they coalesce around Uthman because he's the one. He's the only one of the six who comes both from this tribe of Umayyah, so this pre-Islamic powerhouse in the region, but was also an early convert. And so I think he was a compromised caliph candidate. But um, I don't know, like compromised candidates. I mean, that, that also suggests that he himself didn't have a strong personality, didn't have any strong following. And that certainly comes through. Um, was he a compromised candidate because some of these other figures thought that they could manipulate him, dominate him? So in a sense, he's, he's kind of set up for problems, I think, even from the very beginning. I think the other reason why his election is very controversial is because the group, the individual, the member of the six of the council who did have a big following um, and a very committed loyalty base was Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was also an early convert, son-in-law of Muhammad, and so, but not from you know he's from the the clan of, of Hashim and the same clan as Muhammad, but again, before Islam, a minor clan, an insignificant clan, relatively. So, you know, this idea that Ali is, is overlooked, even though there's those who are really committed to him and think that his closer familial connection with Muhammad should give him precedence. And so I think the election of Uthman becomes a, really a totem for the divisions between Sunni and Shia, over who should be, even though at the time Sunni and Shia were not clear identities, these factions and religious political interpretations were not fully fleshed out. I think when they do become fully developed in the 19th and 10th centuries, they look back on this election of Uthman as again, as this totemic event that symbolized a fracture in the community in which Shia say, the person who rightfully should have been Caliph Ali was overlooked by the companions. And Sunnis say, no, the companions made the right choice. They chose Uthman, and it's the consensus of the community, the consensus of the council, and then later the consensus of the community that trumps or is more significant than the direct lineal descent or close family connection to Muhammad, which is the division in part, not... In solely, but in part, between Sunni and
0: Shia today. So we'll be talking about this throughout the discussion, but briefly, I would love for our readers to, to hear some more about the, the the sort of context, the religious, wow. the social, political context in which Osman is or becomes a Khalifa, but also what he inherits from the other two caliphs. I see, I keep saying caliphs <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> Khalifa. <I anglicized>. Yes. <laughs> um Khalifa. we could say a Khalifa. Um, yes. I think great. I mean, so again as I've mentioned, um a tribal milieu in the Arabian desert, though again, as I point out briefly in the book, setting out context, I mean this doesn't mean primitive by any mean or isolated. You know, the the mm-hmm. the tribes of Arabia had particularly those that were you know, on the borders had connections with the Sasanian Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the leader of Yemen uh, had converted to Judaism and then been conquered by the Christians of Ethiopia. So they're certainly connected to a wider world, um, but yet still these tribal lineages and affiliations are what dominate. And so that's one piece of it. I think obviously Islam asserting itself as a new super tribe that should can subsume these other divisions and then i think from abu Bakr and omar omar the first two caliphs he inherits um again an assertion that to be muslim is to be loyal to medina and the leadership of the companions Like, I don't think that was maybe necessarily assumed. And it was certainly, there's evidence that when Muhammad died, there were those who said that they could be loyal to Allah without needing to be loyal to Medina and the companions. Abu Bakr kind of says no to that and imposes this idea of loyalty to Islam means loyalty to the core. And then I think under Omar, you have this expansion out of Arabia and the beginning of the conquests. So that by the time Uthman becomes caliph, you know, Medina is controlling Palestine, Egypt, Syria, and moving further outward. So I think Uthman inherits then both this kind of tension of a pre-Islamic tribal and now an Islamic hierarchical order, and then he's also inheriting a centrifugal pull towards the center, and also a centripetal hold towards the margins as the conquests are pushing the Islamic empire further and further out. And the tribal commanders of those provinces in Cairo, Syria, Iraq, are wanting more and more authority and say and initiative. And Uthman's got to try to hold these different forces together. And I think, as I say in the book, it would take a really, really impressive ruler to have pulled that off. And there's every indication that Uthman was just not impressive. I mean, he might have been loyal, he might have been sincere, but I don't think he was an impressive political or military strategist. And so um, he paid the price for the for the time in which he lived, um, and that in this kind of dynamic changes that were taking place. But he also, I mean, this is the controversy. Is he a victim of? his time mm-hmm. period and these turbulent changes and to what extent is his murder the result of his own poor leadership? And, and that is that there is no consensus on, on that.
0: Yeah. So some of, some of the criticisms um, that you discuss in here that, that he faces, I was new to, I'd, I'd, I'd known you know, some, of his, um, some of the things again, that were said against him uh, regarding nepotism, for example. But I would love for you to tell, because this is essential to your argument, right? That the way that the Sunni, we're talking about Sunni tradition here, the way that the Sunni tradition refutes these criticisms against Usman and how that contributes to, or what that tells us about Sunni identity. So I would love for for, for, for our listeners to hear a little bit about some of the criticisms that he faces, uh, religion related, um, you know, nepotism and so on. Um, And then how how the Sunni tradition deals with those, with those criticisms.
1: Yeah, great. So, I mean, I think um, the criticisms probably fall into several pockets. So one is this one of nepotism, financial abuse, that once he becomes caliph, he favors his family, both puts them in key government posts around the kind of expanding empire, military commanders, also rewards them with disproportionate amounts of seized booty allocation of land. That's one piece. The other is more, um, I mean, religious, I mean, our understanding of religious, you know, like kind of sacred and profane. I don't think those distinctions existed at the time, but say more um, around ritual and practice. So Uthman was accused of not bowing the right number of times in prayer. Like you were supposed to bow a certain number if you were near your home, different number if you were traveling. And so again, it seems trivial, but I think the criticisms were again, in this early stage, who, you know, things are still in Kuwait. We don't have the written Hadith yet. So, you know, who decides and what kind of liberty does the leader have to kind of, make their own interpretations based on their sense of best practice. I think the bigger piece, though, is that Uthman, and again, this is in some sources mentioned as a criticism, is that though in in the legacy and the tradition, it's going to become his greatest contribution to the Islamic world, is that, again, as Islam is spreading outwards, you're starting to have people further and further away from the tribes of Arabia, different dialects, you're having non-Arabic native speakers converting to Islam, so what is the reading or the pronunciation of the Quran that is authoritative? And of course, as those who know, know Arabic know, like pronunciation matters. It's not just simply emphasis, it, it changes the, the entire word. So Uthman is credited with trying to create an authoritative version and finding uh, Quran reciters who have the most authority and respect and having their pronunciation become authoritative and then distributing that to all the different provinces. But in the process then burning um, those manuscripts that, that differ from this pronunciation. And so he's accused of burning the Quran, which, yeah, I mean, excuse the pun. I mean, that's, that's inflammatory. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a serious accusation. Though, again, when you hear that, you, when you read into the context, you can see our people looking for things to hold against him. They've already right. decided against him for other reasons. And this is just a way of whipping up animosity. I mean, we can see in our own political life in the United States today, you know, using religious touchstones and symbols, even if your grievance is elsewhere, is effective. So I, I think there's probably some of that going on. Um, But I think the other thing that he's really criticized for is when complaints are brought to him, particularly around the nepotism piece and corruption of his appointees, that they're being appointed because they're family members, not because they're particularly pious, Um, which again, gets back to this, are they being appointed because they're from the tribe of, you know, Umayyah rather than because they're good Muslims? Um, Uthman doesn't again, according to the sources, which, again, are late, he doesn't respond well. He, he basically says, you know, God allowed me to be chosen. God chose me. Um, this is what I want to do. And so I think it's that, again, is, is held against him in the sources that he doesn't respond well when criticisms are brought. And that then further entrenches opposition to him by these again the same groups that were kind of suspicious of him from from the beginning i think but there's just a growing body of evidence that they can mobilize uh against him and i think the other kind of key piece and which also goes back to context is the conquests on basically every front stalled and this was something that i hadn't realized before i wrote this book i'd worked with the legacy of Uthman in other contexts, but in actually trying to grapple with what was happening in the seventh century and really engaging with the conquest literature, which is its own kettle of confusion and contradictions. But um, it does seem pretty clear that, yeah, like on every front there had been a pause in the conquest. And I think Omar, who preceded Uthman, had been able to maybe gloss over or paper over some of these tribe versus Islam center versus periphery tensions because Islam, I mean, the tribes were triumphant. Islam was spreading outward. Money was pouring in. And when that stalled halfway through Uthman's reign, you have both the problem of where's the money coming in? How do you keep people who've joined this enterprise happy, but also, you know, this idea of Islam had then become associated with, with triumph and success. And so if we're not, you know, if they're not meeting success in the battlefield, then who's to blame? And so again, the sources do not make those connections. And I think that's in part because they are written later. And there is this sense that the narrative is one of kind of In terms of the conquest, triumph to triumph, this is all ordained by God, Islam is going to conquer the world. But when we kind of dig into them and we hold them up against Byzantine sources that are from the time period, we see that there were actually some significant setbacks. And I think, historically speaking, it's it's my conclusion that those had to have contributed to growing um, resentment and dissatisfaction with Uthman's leadership
0: you know i also liked how he his, his, when when he's um you know when he's criticized uh, directly by by the companions you know with things like "omar didn't do it like this" or Bukhar didn't do it like yeah. this" and he goes "well this is my interpretation" yeah <laughs> which which like you say you know the others would have been allowed like i don't think those are i don't think his interpretations are wrong or bad but it's like you say you know if it's just these are things that are leveled against him because there's already resentment um towards him. And so I didn't think some of the criticisms were, criticisms were legitimate. Um, but it's it's just but but his own responses are just so so fascinating, I- assuming they're they're real and in his own. Um
1: so, can, I, can I follow up on that? Because I think it relates yes. actually to a, your earlier question. Like I think why it becomes kind of, You're right. Like I don't think they're in and of themselves that controversial. And in the ninth century they They probably weren't, which is why they're recorded in those sources. But what ends up happening is as Sunni and Shia develop as different, you know, inter-religio-political interpretations, one of the things that, you know, as the Shia level criticisms at the Umayyad Caliphate and then the Abbasid Caliphate, um, you know, these later dynasties, they also then are going to criticize the companions who elected Uthman and didn't choose Ali. And the Sunnis respond to that. And so by the 10th century, to to level any kind of criticism against Uthman becomes controversial. Any criticism against the companions for choosing Uthman becomes controversial. It becomes heresy. It becomes Shiism rather than, you know, at the time that, you know, when they're still trying to figure out what is this Islamic polity going to be, it was reasonable. But no, but because they're, associated now with Shiism, they're, they're unacceptable. And so we see over time, these re, these sources that are Sunni sources that, but they record the good and the bad over time in the, again, 10th century on, those criticisms really get silenced, really get marginalized, because they become associated with, with
0: Shiism. Well, you know, I, so I was speaking of Sunni sources and Shia sources. I was wondering, since you're looking primarily at sources between the 8th and 14th centuries, how consistent are the Sunni and Shia opinions throughout this period? Are the Sunnis, for example, you know, consistently defending him, using the same rhetoric and arguments, and are the Shias consistently opposed to him? Or is there a particular time period where, that, where they switch, not switch, they just change or depart from historical ideas about him?
1: Um good question. I think I think in the ninth century there's it's a bit of a jumble. And again, I think sources from the ninth century get accused of being Shia because, for example, they might have they might contain criticisms of Uthman. And so later Sunni sources sit, look back and say, Oh, that's that's Shiism. But then if you read the source as a whole, you're like, there's no these are not in any way defending. Ali as the rightful caliph, they're not saying the family of the prophet is uniquely, I mean, they're qualified to leave, they're not defending the Shi'i imams, but they're simply being willing to entertain that the companions were not perfect. And so I think in the ninth century, it, those identities are not clear. What you Instead of what you have is a difference maybe of um, historical genre, so you have chronicles which are trying to, again, record what happened and why. And so, again, those are the ones that are going to be likely to contain more criticisms because they have to, like, clearly there was a rebellion. Clearly something happened. Why did it happen? And they're grappling more with, and they're also written for the court. So they're going to engage with political failings and missteps. So that's one genre. And then you have another genre of biographical dictionaries which are maybe focusing more on individuals but they're also more the positives of those individuals and these are so that they're like things to emulate and um, examples of good leadership and some of they could take on a tone very similar to almost like Christian hagiography of, you know, how we talk about saints, particularly when we're talking about the companions. So you have these different genres that are also emerging. And so I think it becomes not even so much a difference between Sunni and Shia sources, but a difference between what kind of genre is an author writing. If they're writing a chronicle, even if they're Sunni, they're more willing to engage some of the criticisms because they're trying to explain what happened. If they're writing, um, these, they're called fada'l or monaka, like works of, on virtues and mm-hmm. merits, or usually in the form of like a biography or a collection of biographies, that's just a very different genre that has a very different template. And then it's about not talking about shortcomings. And basically the person emerges as a saint, and so when these start to proliferate about the companions, including Othman, all of the criticisms are suppressed, ignored, they, they don't fit the template. And I think what you see over time in the Sunni world is this latter genre comes to dominate the popular imagination and the collective memory. The chronicles are still there, but only scholars know them what circulates in the general public is this popular pietistic memory of the companions as saints more than men. And I think that continues down to the present. I mean, learned, like, you know, highly educated folks may, you know, know what's in the chronicles, but out in the street. I mean, when I was in Cairo and I told people I was studying the fitna, like none of my Egyptian friends knew there was a fitna, like, They knew there was a civil war between Ali and Muawiyah that comes later, but they didn't know there was, they didn't know Uthman was murdered. They didn't know anything. Like it was completely, all they knew is that he was an early companion. He married two of Muhammad's daughters. He unified the Quran. He was influential in the conquest. Like that was it. So I think that's a, that's a different question as to why does this pietistic hagiographic genre come to dominate. And I think that's because, in part, the chronicle narratives that become more associated with or willing to entertain criticisms, the Shia continue that tradition. They don't have to make up different sources. They don't have to make up different um, versions. Like in the case of Uthman, there's bread, there's there's plenty of material to work with. But they just continue, They they double down on the criticisms and they emphasize those and they downplay early conversion, marriage, etc. and so they just and so again i think that becomes it becomes harder and harder so that by the 14th century even to you know talk about some of these criticisms which are completely normative in the tradition in the 9th century is really edgy because you're now kind of entertaining what's associated with again with shiism
0: well in the interest of making sure that we don't downplay some of his accomplishments. Yes. Let's uh, let's talk about some of his accomplishments as a caliph and, and how contested those might be.
1: Yeah, I mean I, again I think this question um, I mean the conquests stall during his caliphate but I think the fact that he even commits to them, he continues them. And again this it's tricky to get this from the sources because again we don't get, we don't know for the seventh century really like how much authority did Uthman in Medina have versus the initiative of the commanders out on the on the frontiers. Like it's hard to really know that because later sources are going to project back onto Uthman a ninth century much more developed centralized kind of monarchic monarchical um, uh, understanding of leadership, but. It certainly didn't happen without Uthman's support. And so the fact that he's taking that kind of initiative, he's continuing to allocate resources or at least give, you know, the commanders in the field, the the green light to go ahead. I think that's significant. I mean, I think he needs to be credited for that, even if it, it does, you know, put pressure on, you know, his leadership. I think also, again, this issue of the Quran, I mean, that, I mean, it needed to be done, which again comes back you know, to what extent is Uthman a, a victim of the changes that needed to take place, that this is used against him. But you could argue, I mean, the Quran is, I mean, has has held the Muslim community together. I mean, this is something, and again, in the 20th century, there's been some skepticism. Was Uthman really responsible? Did the Quran really come together much later? This idea of a late Quran that's associated with the ninth century and the Abbasid period but in recent years, no the idea that this was, Uthman did do this initiative it's in his you know, the during the period of his caliphate that the authoritative codex of the Quran comes together that's been held up by the most recent scholarship so I think Uthman deserves huge credit for that, it It was a risky move in some ways. And again, it may have cost him his life, but all Muslims ever since, I think, are
0: indebted Mm. to him for that. Yeah. Let's talk about something sad, his murder. Yes. What are some different narratives about who kills him and why?
1: Yeah, I think, um, again, I think the earliest sources we have from the ninth century give a a range of views. And again, this is where we're dealing with the the difficulty of the sources, is not only are they late, but they didn't create a smooth narrative. They chose to keep all the different reports that they accumulated and they put them together. And so you can have accounts that contradict each other back to back in our earliest sources. So they themselves are, in a sense, saying, you know, "Allahu alam," like we we don't know. Um, here's the different accounts, and the different accounts are um, again that this was a rebellion um, from the provinces, particularly Egypt and Kufa in southern Iraq, but also Basra. Syria seems very loyal, but again, maybe Syria wasn't loyal. It's just that the Umayyad dynasty that comes to power after the civil war, is based in Syria. Who killed Othman and why? There's there's a spectrum within the traditions. From those accounts that say key companions turned against him and either riled up um, again, forces that came from the provinces, particularly Egypt and Kufa and Basra, to protest against Uthman and then As I said earlier, Uthman didn't respond positively to those complaints and instead doubled down. There's accusations that he promised to change, but he was actually stalling, waiting for reinforcements from Syria. So they're they're very negative and they can play. They place a lot of blame on Uthman, you know, even double dealing down to the end. Um, And again, key companions turning against him. To sources that say it was, um, you know, more circumstances, Uh, Uthman was duped by his advisors and manipulated and, again, portray him slightly more sympathetically. Like, to ones that say um, it was actually this outside, there's this character named Abdullah ibn Sabah who was a Yemeni Jew who converted to Islam. And he appears in one early source, um, Saif Ibn Omar, and then he gets picked up by the Sunni tradition and really amplified because he becomes, in a sense, a scapegoat of, you know, it helps that he's, he's, a, he's a Jewish convert, so they're going to somehow, they work hard to other him as really being an outsider not a real convert. He gets accused of emphasizing the role of Ali in ways that are clearly heretical, even for Shia, like really elevating Ali so that they associate and they make him basically the source of the rebellion, that he's traveling around as an instigator, fomenting rebellion, telling false tales about Uthman, and that basically the community is, is misled by him. And then they besiege Uthman, break into Uthman's house and kill him. And then Uthman Sabath kind of disappears from the story. And so the Sunni literature will take this kind of like marginal plot line and it, over time it becomes more and more central because it becomes a way of, it, of exonerate, exonerating the community, exonerating the companions, they can blame everything on this person, and they can associate him with early Shiism. Um, but again, the historical evidence, I think, by outside scholars who dug into this is that he either didn't exist or there was a character by this name, but he didn't exist at the time of Uthman. But I think, you know, even in the early 20th century, people like Taha Hussein. Who is going back and you know, look writing popular histories is willing to be critical and say, yes, Ibn Sabah was a, a scapegoat character, but he's kind of a lone voice. I think still down to the present, the majority view amongst kind of even, yeah, a lot of like Sunni scholarship is still to say Ibn Sabah is the is the villain of the story. Because again, it becomes to criticize the companions. In any way, including Ottoman, is is just so deeply associated now with with Shia heresy that
0: it's a it's a no go. Hmm. So I don't know if that answers so, your question. Oh, it does. Oh, that was perfect. So overall, how is his legacy treated in? I want to make sure that we get we get to talk enough about um, Shia sources here as well, or Shia opinions on on his legacy. How is his legacy treated in Shia sources?
1: I mean, so again, I think Shia sources are these the same criticisms that can appear in some Sunni sources are the sources that the the Shia use, but they emphasize them. they center, they center them. They're like, these are significant failings. Um, you know, he was, he was not a prominent companion. And again, so there's this thing, like this idea of being a prominent companion in an early convert. So Sunnis want to emphasize the early convert. The Shia sources point out he um, there's these three kind of criteria for being an early convert. You participate in the Battle of Badr, you participate in the Battle of Ahud, and you were at the Treaty of Udebeya. And Othman was at none of those things. One of them because he ran away. Like, and even the Sunni sources admit he ran away from the battle. Um, the other, he wasn't there because he was caring for his wife who was, who was dying.
0: Yes, which I thought was so, so beautiful and so sweet.
1: It is very sweet. So again, so the so Shia sources will say he wasn't there. He's a coward. Um, and the Sunni sources will say, but Muhammad forgave him for being a coward. And he wasn't at this other battle because he was caring for his wife. So Muhammad, you know, accepted that. And this tr- this key treaty that he was absent from, the Sunnis will say, well, he wasn't there because he'd been taken captive by the umayyads Um, and muhammad wanted him to send him as his negotiator and then he's taken captive and the shia sources will say yeah muhammad sent him as his negotiator because he himself was an umayyad which means he was close with muhammad's fiercest opponents how is that a virtue so like they're taking the same events but they're just framing them totally differently and then Again, Sunnis really emphasize that Muhammad that Uthman married two of Muhammad's daughters. Like again, this becomes over time a bigger and bigger deal. Whereas the Shia they're not convinced that he did marry two of Muhammad's daughters. Or if they are daughters, they're stepdaughters, right? Because they don't And again, you can see this dialogue between Sunni and Shia. Like it seems like the Sunnis I don't know if they change the stepdaughters to daughters, or they were daughters, but again the earliest sources don't emphasize this, but later sources do, and it's clear that the Sunnis are trying to refute the Shia claims that are emphasizing Ali married to Fatima, and the significance of being a direct descendant from Muhammad, and kind of family lineage, so they need to up the ante while Uthman was married to two of Muhammad's daughters. Like, there's clearly a dialogue going on, and then Shia respond, Well, they weren't daughters, they were stepdaughters, and they weren't daughters who were prominent. There's no evidence of them having close relationships or being particularly supportive of Muhammad. So again, they're taking similar incidents, but coming to very different conclusions. And then the same is going to happen with the election of Uthman. Shia are going to say it should have been Ali. Everybody knew it should have been Ali. He had been appointed by Muhammad. But tribal loyalties and conspiracy worked to marginalize Ali and that people, the members of this election council chose Uthman because it suited their own tribal interests, which, again, I think seems perfectly, again, these were men who came from tribes. I don't think tribal loyalties disappear overnight, but... Mm -hmm you know so they're going to they're going to say that and the sunni sources that can even contain whisperings of that are going to marginalize it because it's problematic to suggest that the people you know these close companions of muhammad deliberately ignored muhammad's chosen candidate deliberately ignored the one who should have been the leader for their own ambitions again that that becomes Shia heresy. So the Shia will say that, but they'll say that's not heresy. That's, that's truth, you know, and that God would not have gone through all the effort of appointing Muhammad, revealing the revelation, establishing a community to leave it up to chance with Muhammad's death. Um, There was a clear plan and it was supposed to be Ali. Um, Which I, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not a Shia, but, I mean I think there's a lot of, I think when put that way I think the burden of proof is on sunnis to say yeah how how did god allow this to be so mm-hmm. risky um mm-hmm. early on and so I think that you know for she and then again they'll just con- so they're able to downplay these things from Uthman's early life and relationship with Muhammad they're able to downplay them and then there's all the abuses of Uthman's caliphate which they're then able to say you know the the evidence is clear um and I guess you know I forget the lab phrase but the thing speaks for itself I mean the end of Uthman's caliphate is is the only verdict that that the Shia needs something went fundamentally wrong and that's because the wrong person was chosen. And, that, and that's, that's been the narrative that continues to be the narrative. I think one of the things that happens within Shi'ism is that you're able to say that I think there's a kind of different understanding. Like for Shia, you don't have this idea that the companions are saints, right? It's, it's the family of the prophet who are saintly. The companions are not saintly. So it's not a problem to say, yes, they embraced Islam early on. Yes, they supported Muhammad at risk to themselves, but that doesn't make them perfect. That doesn't mean they didn't make a mistake later. That doesn't mean they abandoned Islam. Whereas, you know, and that, again, one act of faithfulness doesn't mean we don't look at their their life as a whole. And they'll look at the life of the companions as a whole, particularly their treatment of Ali, and say they either wavered in their faith or abandoned their faith. And again, I think there's a spectrum within Shiism in terms of how critical they're willing to be of the companions and which companions. So there's a a range. Whereas for the Sunnis, this kind of criticism, they then double down and say, no, all the companions are saintly and practically perfect and would never, ever, ever go against
0: God's will
1: and Muhammad's choice and, and that the election of Uthman is 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 what was meant to happen
0: yeah so just so fascinating and you know also a tragic set of events but so i noticed that there are there are no footnotes or endnotes and you know seldom any in-text citations so that the readers you know so so, the, so that readers know where a particular claim is being cited from i would love to hear about this since it's not since I don't think it's that's very standard for most academic books. You have a b- bibliography, of course, um, but I'm wondering about your choice not to directly cite your sources throughout the book. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Um, it's not my choice. Um, it no. is the it is the policy of the series. So the book is a part of the Makers of the Muslim World series from One World Academic in the UK. Um, and there's now, my goodness, I don't know how many well, I mean, makers of the Muslim world, I mean, that's a very expansive mandate. Um, there's probably at least 20. And so the hope for the series is that you're getting people um, writing on topics uh, with which they're very conversant and that they're going to provide, which is what I've tried to do, this is the scholarly consensus to date, um, and where there is ongoing um, debate or new edges of research that gets noted, but it's, it's not about kind of exploring all the ins and outs of the scholarly debate. Um, it's hoped for that these would be picked up by general readers, like somebody who's maybe a specialist in another area, but maybe ha- is exploring some kind of comparative a theme or topic or time period so that it's not written for specialists. Mm-hmm. The idea that it could also be an accompanying volume in a course. So the idea is deliberately to not have it be, um, yeah, with, with footnotes or endnotes. But for those who want to know more, there is a, and I don't even think it's, um, I think it's listed as like a selected bibliography. Yes. Um, and even yeah. that, I think I was probably pushing the limits of how many, um, they wanted me to include. And I did try to get around things like where I do a direct quote from a primary source rather than a footnote in brackets. I identify the, the source and page number that, you know, readers can find yeah. in the bibliography. But again, I think this idea, yeah, it was, it was, in it was obviously I've not, I'm not obviously, but I have not written, um, without footnotes before it, it was, um, I wonder what that's like. Yeah, it now. did feel a little bit, I don't know, like I don't know, like riding a bike without training wheels or walking on an icy path without a handrail. Um I did feel like footnotes are such a yeah, they're such a security. Um it felt a little bit uh cut loose from them. But I mean I hope is that I'm not um saying any that again, it's it's giving a uh, new I think the idea is that if this is, you know, if you're an Islamic scholar, but this is not your particular area, you know enough that you can, you know where to go. And there's enough yeah. kind of signposts in the bibliography or the sources that I, you know, name by title or author to find your way. And that mm-hmm. if you're not a specialist, y- you don't need all of that anyway. You're not going to pursue it,
0: I think, which I, I hope the book successfully It it that line. It's it's very readable. Um, it's definitely very very accessible, and I imagine for non-academics as well, it was very easy to read, and and follow. Yeah, I mean, I just I I was hmm, sorry. Yeah, I think it was it was was like footnotes, but yeah. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I mean, I think the idea of this series is an interesting one. This idea that taking individuals, with the hopes that they are a window onto the Muslim Mm -hmm. world, so that they're very much the life and times and that you're using them to kind of open up for non-specialist, some of the inner workings and dynamics of the Muslim world. And I think, you know, Uthman, I mean, it's interesting, like in writing this biography, in some ways Uthman is, for a biography, is, is largely absent as a person. And I, and I think that's because one, we don't have the sources. And I think he, he's come to live in the tradition as, as an idea as much as anything else. And so kind of using him as this entry point to some of these bigger ideas of Sunni Shia, how the Sunni world has dealt with some of the controversies and sense a growing conservatism, it almost feels like the ninth century was more liberal and more open-minded in its historiography and historical discourse than it is today. Um, what are some of the reasons why that might be? You know, so that, again, the life is there. We're using Othman, but he's a, he's an entry point to these bigger themes and dynamics. Yeah,
0: Just really, again, incredibly fascinating and, and such a useful book. I, I learned so much from it. And like I was telling you earlier, I was ambivalent toward him. You know, I wasn't sure what to think about him, um, which is why I was so excited to read about him. But having gotten so much out of this book, I, I feel a lot more comfortable in my, about my view to, views towards him now. Um, so thank you for the book. <laughs> I don't think the public needs to know what I think about him now, but <laughs>
1: I, think, I think ambivalence is probably. I mean, I think he he is an ambivalent figure. I mean, I think people, right, yeah. which is why I think people try to jump over him. You know, they move from Omar as. I mean, I think there's, a, there's there could be an entirely different kind of discussion about why Omar, his predecessor, gets amplified so much, and Uthman gets downplayed, right. and but I think. For me as an idea like living in Egypt as I said earlier for over a decade I it's just super fascinating to me that this mm-hmm. these rifts in the early community are just they they've been forgotten and I think especially as there's still this idea particularly you know wide scenes in the Sunni Muslim community of a desire to reclaim the age of Medina to reclaim the era of the early caliphate. And then you look at the reign of Uthman and you think, war. civil war, schism? Um, mm-hmm. Like, does wh- what, what that mean? But what, you know, so I think for me, the issues are very much alive and present. Um, and, and this idea of what does it mean to deal with a ruler who's less than ideal? I mean, if that's not relevant for, if not the Muslim world, the Middle East, uh, I don't know. What is so I, to me? It, it just he just seems again as a time period, as a person, as a problem that needs to be solved. Um, yeah. Extremely relevant today.
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us with our listeners before we come to a close?
1: No, I mean I think that's a that's probably a, a strong <laughs> point to end on as I can make. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you for this. And then as we close, we like to ask our authors to tell us what they're working on currently, uh, that we can look forward to in the near future, inshallah.
1: Inshallah. Um, I've pivoted, I'm trained as a medievalist, and my focus is on early Islamic history, but I've really gotten interested more in the modern era, I think in part from just living in Egypt. I just, you know, that Egypt is near and dear to my heart, and I was there for the Arab Spring, and Mm -hmm. Um, in its its glory days, in the triumphant first part. So my heart is there. I'm interested very much in modern Egypt. I tend to teach more the modern period. So I'm using now, there's a pedagogy that came out of Barnard College called Reacting to the Past, which um, some professors, some people listening may be familiar with. And there are these elaborate three- to four-week role-play games that are set in different historical moments um, with the idea that students embody different historical characters and they're set up as games with the idea that history is not predetermined, that human choices matter. So the games are set up that the historical circumstances are real so that they can't just, not anything can happen. And they're kind of tilted to what was the historical outcome but students also can see the choices that presented historical characters. Anyway, there's a whole consortium of universities and faculty that use these. There's numerous different games from the French Revolution to uh, partition in India, but there's, there's virtually none in the Middle East. And I set in the Middle East, set in the Islamic world. And so I've actually been working um, to have a game set in 1920s Egypt at the intersection of nationalism and feminism, um, which is a topic I'm super interested in. And it just seems like a really turbulent and exciting time. And again, maybe, maybe like the ninth century, a time in which the 1920s seemed more, dynam- more dynamic, more liberal, more open to experimentation than today. So I, I think that's interesting to explore and I'm and I want I mean teaching in the us now after teaching in Egypt for a decade, I'm just very cognizant of how how little American students know how deep are their false assumptions about the region and so to really kind of immerse them in a moment that feels very dynamic in which liberal and conservative interpretations of Islam, of the nation are really at the forefront. so, I'm working on that. And then I'm also working on a similar idea, but set in the Syrian um, general Congress of 1919. And again, questions of the nation as, you know, greater Syria, regionalism, how to respond to Zionism. And in both games, how to respond to imperialism and really exploring the ways in which the legacy of imperialism you know, casts a very long shadow over the ongoing struggles um, in the region. So, yeah, kind of trying to bring my writing and my research and my teaching um, into alignment in ways that feel very energizing at the moment.
0: Oh, that sounds so exciting. And yeah, it's a wonderful time time period to work with, too. Well, I look forward to that. Thank you so much, Heather. This would be all. And... um, Yeah, I I can't wait to publish this and have listeners uh, listen to this interview.
1: Thank you so much again for this warm invitation. And it's been a pleasure talking with you and talking about Uthman, again, as an idea. if uh,
0: um, (laughs) Just to be sure.
1: Yeah, as an idea and a person. (laughs) Yes.
0: All right. Thank Thank you, Shazan. Have a good day. Okay. So that was my interview with Heather Keeney about her book, Uthman Ibn Adfan, Legend or Liability, published with One World in 2021. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe. Salam.